I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, also known as the King of the Cowboys and Queen of the West, were household names throughout most of the second half of the 20th century. Following several failed marriages each, they married in 1947 and remained married for over 50 years until Roy's passing in 1998. During their successful careers, the couple starred in numerous Western films, often alongside Roy's famous horse, Trigger. They appeared on many television variety shows, including one they hosted themselves. They also entertained their fans at many live events, such as rodeos and parades, and were often heard singing a song written by Dale called Happy Trails. In this episode of Your History, Your Story, we'll be speaking with Julie Rogers Pamelia, the granddaughter of Roy and Dale. Julie will be speaking about her recently released book, Your Heroes, My Grandparents, A Granddaughter's Love. She will share stories about growing up in the Rogers family and how, despite a series of family challenges and tragedies, Roy and Dale were able to consistently foster an atmosphere of love, fun, and faith. I'd now like to welcome Julie Rogers Pamelia to our show. Welcome, Julie. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here today. Well, I am very interested to speak with you because I have just finished your book, your Heroes, My Grandparents, A Granddaughter's Love. And this book, it just made me so happy. It put me in such a good mood because it was just filled with memories of all kinds um, that you have of your very famous grandparents, Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, also known as the King of Cowboys and the Queen of the West. Wow, what titles. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, crazy. And yet they were just grandma and grandpa, too. They were grandma and grandpa. So yep. now you were actually the biological granddaughter of Dale Evans, but not Roy Rogers. Can you tell right. us about that relationship? Well, my grandma uh, got pregnant at 14, had my dad at 15, and so uh, she proceeded to have like three marriages before she met grandpa. So she had kind of taken the hard road, so to speak, and she had made kind of a mess of her life and she was just really struggling. Grandpa had two marriages before grandma. So both of them, by the time they met each other, you know, it, it, there was a lot of baggage there. And he had two children. Uh, he had one daughter that was adopted and two that were biological from his second marriage. So when they got married, they had four. Then they had one that was uh, between the two of them. And that was the only child they had that was biological from Roy and Dale, but they had to bury her on her second birthday because she had severe heart problems and she had Down syndrome and it was really heartbreaking. So after they had that experience, they figured, you know what? We, we better not try to have any more kids she was already 35, 36. And back then that's pretty old because they didn't have all the modern medicine and stuff like they do today. 
And so they started adopting. They wanted a big family. So they adopted five out of nine. And we had a very multicultural family because I have one aunt that's from, uh, she's Native American. I have another one that was from Korea. I had another one that was Scottish. And then I had another uncle that had mild brain damage. He was, uh, you know, some things going on because his parents had beat him in his, oh. on his brain. He had brain damage from it and he was left just abandoned. And so he was kind of on the edge of special needs. So we had a very diverse family and it was wonderful. No, there was no pecking order of who was who, are you biological or are you adopted or foster? Everyone was the same and grandpa loved us all. Grandma and grandpa loved us all. Yeah, throughout your book, you I mean, you explain how exactly you're related, but after that, they're just grandma and grandpa. You never talked about him any differently than yeah. a biological grandfather. Uh-uh. And I never knew even a biological grandfather on my other side, too. So um, I find now that when people want to know, they, they're just curious how our family fits together. Um, but when I was younger and people would say, oh, so you're not really related to Roy Rogers. He's not really your grandfather then. That would just break my heart. I'd go, wait, what? Because I didn't understand. But... Now, I just know people just want to know how it all fits together. And um, he's very much so my my grandpa. Yeah. Now, as far as your dad is concerned, from pictures I saw in the book, your dad and your grandma were really close in age. They almost looked like brothers and sisters, didn't they? They did. And um, it really bummed my dad out one time because somebody thought he was uh, her older brother. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, no, <laughs> she's my mom. And, and I'm a lot younger. I mean, 15 years younger anyway. But um, yeah, they looked a lot alike. They looked a lot like brother and sister. And when she came to Hollywood, she had to pass him off as her brother because that was not a very common and acceptable thing to, to be not married and have a child. Uh, back then, that was kind of a, you know, not a good thing. So that was a tough time. I bet it was. And, uh, you know, coming into even divorce wasn't as uh, no. you know, common as it is today. And, right. uh, but anyway, so how did Roy and Dale meet each other? Yeah. Well, um, they knew of each other because they had the same manager and grandma didn't really like grandpa because her manager would always talk about Roy this and Roy that, and he was up and coming and she was still struggling. And it's like, oh, I don't want to hear any more about him. And then lo and behold, uh, he got her a uh, a reading or, you know, a screen test to be grandpa's leading lady. She said the minute she walked in and met him, she just melted because he was such a nice person. Everybody felt like that. So there was nothing not to like about him. So they met on the, the set of their first movie together, The Cowboy and the Senorita. And, you know, they asked her if she knew how to ride a horse. And she lied, of course, because you do that <laughs> in Hollywood. Say, oh, of course I do. I'm from Texas. Of course I know how to ride a horse. Well, she didn't. And Grandpa was very gentlemanly. But he said when she got on that set, it was very obvious. She didn't know one end of the horse from the other. She didn't know which side to get on. And when she finally got on and she was trotting away, Grandpa said he'd never seen so much blue sky between a woman's rear end and a horse in his life. <laughs> that, um, yeah, she was about ready to come off that saddle. So he said, you know, you might want to take a few riding lessons. And he gave her some tips. And by the time their show ended, she was a pretty decent rider. 
<laughs> How do you fake riding a horse? I mean, I couldn't even begin to. No, I, I couldn't either. And before that, she had come out to Hollywood to do a screen test with Fred Astaire, telling them, oh, yes, of course, I can dance. Well, she couldn't dance either. And you don't exactly bumble your way through a screen test with Fred Astaire, you know, if you don't dance. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> No. So she, yeah, she was off of that and on to now another one. And here she was not able to ride a horse. So she learned and uh, she had what it took for Hollywood because she just never said no. She was going to say, yes, I can do this. Yes, I can do that. She did it. So let's talk about their careers now. We're talking 19 mid 40s when they were in their first movie together when they met. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Western's started becoming very popular in this country, didn't they? Yes, it was it was definitely on the upswing. And for the whole 40s and into the 50s, Westerns were really popular. And then towards the end of the 50s into the 60s, I guess, they started phasing out. Well, Bonanza was kind of like the last the last one. And, and it was a lot different than the first Westerns, you know. Uh, and then they started phasing more into like variety shows and stuff like that. But, you know, the people always kind of laugh about the B Westerns like they are subpar to like a big sweeping John Wayne movie. But the reality is if they didn't have those B Westerns, the studios wouldn't have had the funds to make those big Westerns. So they were the B Westerns were actually a very important part of the whole Western world, you know, of movie making you know, because they brought in money each week from all those matinees and, you know, they just cranked those out really fast. And yes, it was, you know, sometimes they say, oh, it was mediocre acting and it was kind of, you know, formulaic and stuff. Uh, but that was what it was. And, and it was meant to be just a nice, feel good, not very deep movie. And they accepted that as what it was, my grandparents did. And they they loved children, and so they were very happy to be a part of children's lives. Wasn't there another name for it? Was it called Spaghetti Westerns? Is that what they used to yes, call Yes, there was. Spaghetti Westerns were, weren't those Westerns that were made actually in Europe? They were made other places. Because I know when we rode in the parade with Dan Rowan's son, Dan Rowan from Laugh-In, um, yeah, it, our group in the in the Rose Parade was Sons and Daughters of the Real West, spelled R-E-E-L. And so we had the John Wayne family represented. We had the, you know, Kiki Epson from Buddy Epson's, you know, Buddy Epson's daughter. And then they had Tom Rowan. And we were like, Tom, wasn't your dad in Laugh-In? What are you here in this group for? And he goes, well, my dad made one spaghetti Western and we never let him live that down. And he said, oh man, you got in here by the skin of your teeth. One. <laughs> oh, that but, is funny. Yeah. You know, one of the earlier pictures of me at Christmas, I think I was three, but I have a cowboy outfit on. I got the cowboy hat, the uh -huh. six shooter, um, you know, the belt the pants, the whole deal. You know, Westerns were big. My mother, who was from London, born and raised in London, she loved Westerns. She couldn't get enough of Westerns. Really? Yeah, that was her favorite thing. And I used to go, sometimes she'd haul me along if I guess my dad and my brother were were, were doing something else. And I just remember watching it. She just, she adored them. Now, I remember Bonanza was on Sunday night. Yes. Uh -huh. I used to watch that Sunday night. 
Sunday yep. night, and along with uh, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that one, too. Yeah. So tell me, <laughs> tell me about the types of roles that your grandparents played in these movies that they were in. Well, you know, Grandpa was always the hero, of course, except for the first movie he was in, which was Dark Command. That's the name of it. Uh, he was in there uh, in that movie with John Wayne and Claire Trevor. And he was he played a impetuous younger brother of Claire Trevor and he wore a, a dark hat. So he was not Roy Rogers in that movie. But then when he got into his groove and playing Roy Rogers with Trigger, then he always played the good guy in the white hat. And it was always, there was always some kind of moral to the story at the end. And grandma always played the, the city girl that came in and she always had kind of an attitude. And grandpa was just uh, very beguiling. Is that what you say? What, what do you, you know, I mean, he was just, he was attracted to her, but he was trying to kind of win her over with kindness and she would finally be won over at the end. But the little boys would always say if he got close to kissing her, like it looked like he was going to kiss her, they'd say, no, 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 you leave that mushy stuff out. We don't want that. So he was only allowed to kiss his horse to kiss Trigger. So grandma was a little bit ticked off about that because Trigger got top billing even over her and she never got to be kissed. It was always his horse. And so she was kind of third wheel to Trigger even. You mentioned Trigger. Tell us about this horse. It's amazing. Now, a lot of people, although I guess the current younger generation probably doesn't know who Trigger was yeah. or is, but certainly I know and uh, generations before us know. Tell us about Trigger. Trigger was an absolutely amazing horse. He and Grandpa had a bond that was like no other. And he really did love that horse and trigger you just knew felt the same way about grandpa they just had a real closeness and he um helped train trigger with glenn randall was the official trainer and when he got older you know they called him the old man when he got older <clears throat> they had to get another lookalike trigger to fill in for especially when they went on the road, because that's horribly hard on a horse's knees when they're traveling in a horse trailer across country. It's just very demanding on the horse and it's it's hard on the horse. And it, you know, he didn't want to run the old man into the ground, so to speak. So they had two triggers. They had Trigger Jr. and Little Trigger. And then they had a stable with about seven others, you know, total, just in case. And they had to, you know, people say, oh, that's heresy. You know, there was only one trigger. Well, there was only one trigger. Um, the old man, he did all of his movies and his TV shows with him. And that was his horse. That was his beloved horse. But they did eventually have to incorporate some other younger triggers or else they he couldn't have kept up any of the shows around the country. So you can tell if you know horses and you know the markings, you can tell which pictures are trigger and which are you know, Trigger Jr. or Little Trigger. But yeah, Trigger Jr. was very ornery. I mean, you know, when he was in the, the rodeos, he would come up and bite Grandpa in the shoulder sometimes and just do stuff to be annoying, you know? And one time he bit him so hard, he broke the skin. 
grandpa was really mad at him. He he stormed back after the show was over. Then he was going to give him what for. He was so mad at that horse and Trigger saw him and he started backing up, backing up, backing up until he hit the wall and didn't know what else to do. So he started doing every trick he knew. He started counting and praying and, you know, just everything he knew. And grandpa just had to look and just shake his head and say, you know what? <laughs> okay, you win. You're you're a pretty smart horse. Um, <laughs> and everybody else was watching too back there and they just couldn't believe what he did. He was almost human. Yeah, I mean, but the old man, that's the one that grandpa set us up on top of. He could sit a lot of us up from mane to tail on that horse and he'd ride us around the corral. But I didn't know how to ride a horse, how to really ride because... All I did was sit on Trigger and ride him around with grandpa's help. So when I got married, my husband is a real horseman. And he said, wait a minute, are you telling me that you're Roy Rogers' granddaughter and you don't know how to ride a horse? <laughs> and I'm going to teach you that? I said, yep. Mm -hmm. So after he got over that, he taught me. So I'm, now I'm a rider. I know how to ride. Julie, you wrote, you sat on, maybe we won't say road, but you sat on Trigger. What mm -hmm. was it like to be able to say that? That is so cool. Well, you know, even when I, I was only three, the first time I sat on him, I was almost four. I remember it to this day. I truly do because grandpa asked if I wanted to go down to the stables to see Trigger. And I knew my dad had his camera and he wanted to get a picture of me on Trigger. And so I was all about that. Sure. Yes. Yes. I want to go. So he brought the saddle out, he brought Trigger out, and he hoisted me up onto Trigger's back. And I felt so safe. That horse stood rock still with me on him. I, You can't tell me that he didn't know there was a little girl on top of him, and he needed to be very careful. And Grandpa and my dad stood back, and I remember them taking my picture, and I was a little concerned because I thought, shouldn't you be getting some horses? Aren't we going to go somewhere? And um, we didn't, we just were in the corral there. But I mean, I knew that he was in the movies, but I, I didn't have a clue how famous he was though at the time, not even a little bit. His hooves are next to your grandfather's hands and feet, I think at Grumman's Chinese theater, right? Yes, yes, they are. And it's been several times that I've taken my own sons there in the book, I have a picture of grandpa doing that with Trigger. And then what, 40, 50 years later, I don't know how many years later it was. I have a picture of me with my sons there at the same spot. And that's pretty heartwarming for me to be able to take my kids back to show them where their great grandfather's prints are and also their stars on their on the Walk of Fame. That picture was really, really interesting to see that. So your grandparents got married not long after they met on the set. So they were married in the in the 40s, mid 40s or so. So when they did a lot of their movies and stuff, they were married. They were a married couple. And what uh -huh. was it like for them actually, you know, working together and living together? Was that ever a strain for them? You know what? I don't know how they did it, but they did. I mean, they had early mornings getting up at four in the morning. Uh, having to be on set by 5.30 or whatever it was. And then long days way past sundown. And, you know, they just wanted, they wanted it to work and they vowed that it would. They had had so many broken marriages between the two of them leading up to this that they said, okay, 
no more divorce. Murder maybe, but no more divorce. <laughs> and they stuck to it. And, you know, it wasn't always easy, but they, you know, they had some tough times and they had three children die within the space of just a few years. And Trigger also died within that time period too. So, you know, their life wasn't totally roses. And I say that in the book because that's part of their life. But for the most part, they were the most positive people you could ever meet. And so were my parents. And I just feel really grateful for growing up in the household that I did. You know, the book did make me very happy. I felt it was a feel good book at the end, but that's not to say that it didn't include some really sad things in there. There were, uh, yeah. as you mentioned, a loss of three of their children. Are you is it okay? Can you tell us a little bit how they oh. lost those children? Oh, yeah. Well, the first one they lost, they, you know, that was their only biological child. And she was born with heart problems and Down syndrome. And she died a couple days before she turned two. And that was really hard. Although during that time, it was a blessing because they changed the social landscape of how people viewed children or anybody really with special needs. They used to put them away in institutions. And they were brave enough and courageous enough to bring out their, their daughter and talk about it and be very open. And it changed the way that the public thought of that. And they were very instrumental in that. And people started coming out to their rodeos in droves with, with all these kids. So grandpa said, I want all the first few rows for just those families. And then they would go greet them at the end. So, you know, there was a lot of good that came out of that. And then Debbie, it was just tragic uh, the way that my aunt died when I was six. There's a chapter about her in there. And uh, she was on a bus, a church bus coming back from an orphanage in, at Tijuana. They were bringing toys and clothes down to the kids there. And um, there's a stretch of road that didn't used to be divided. Now it is today uh, near San Clemente down there, Carlsbad. And the bus blew a tire and went into the oncoming traffic. And seven cars were involved and all the people in the station wagon they hit first were killed. And Debbie and her best friend were killed in that crash. That was gut-wrenching. That was really hard. And then my uncle died overseas when he was in the army in Germany. Uh, he was the one that had a little bit of special needs. I'm not even sure how he got into the army, but some some area he was allowed to do and you know, you can't tell me that probably they bent the rules a little bit. Today, they probably wouldn't. But back then, they did. And he had just earned his stripes. He had been promoted. And so he wanted so much to fit in. And so the guys took him out to drink. And uh, the next morning, he was found unresponsive. And he died from, a, you know, overdose of drinking. And then, well, and then Trigger just died of old age. But, but that was really tough to take because they were all so close and to lose three children is just to even lose one is horrendous, but they lost three, but it didn't dampen their love for people, their love for God, their life Their They just used it and went on. It seemed to deepen their love for people. Yes, it did. It really added a lot of dimension to their lives and a lot of empathy. And that was a good thing. They were very much uh, just loving people. Yeah, and I seem to remember in the chapter when when Debbie lost her life that wasn't your grandfather in the hospital recovering from an injury? Yes, he would. He had had neck surgery. 
he had been in so many boats, racing boats and hard on his neck and stuff with all the horse riding horses and stuff too, that he had a really serious neck surgery. And then he had gotten a staph infection on top of that. And he was in the hospital when all this happened. Grandma had to call the hospital and say, don't let him turn on the TV. I don't want him finding out. Well, somebody snuck in there uh, and told him. And it was really sad the way that he found out. Uh, and he he almost didn't make it. And he couldn't be at the funeral. Grandma had to do it alone with the kids. And it was not an easy time for sure. And Grandpa was really close to Debbie. I mean, he was close to all his kids, but there was something. Debbie was just on his lap all the time and just really uh, outgoing. And that really brought out a lot in him because, you know, he was so shy. Such a terrible time that they had. And yet yeah. they, they did persevere and you as a family persevered. Now, you mentioned, I think, in the 50s, maybe towards the end of the 50s, the the movies that they were in maybe started to dwindle a little bit, but they still maintained their popularity. Yeah. Uh, on TV and at rodeos and things. Can you tell us about that period of time? Well, you know, Grandpa was pretty smart because he knew that he was coming to the end of doing his movies. And, you know, you can kind of sense that. And so they still were very busy doing variety shows and special appearances and rodeo tours and just all kinds of stuff. And he also got the idea, you know what, I think that putting my name and likeness on toys and every kind of thing possible would really be beneficial. He, um, he actually got that idea because they wouldn't give him a raise at Republic. So, you know, they went on tour and they, he started doing all of this merchandising because he wanted to answer the fan letters that were coming in and he didn't even have enough money for the stamps to do that. So it kind of, graduated as it went and got bigger and bigger. And then of course, at the end of his career in movies, um, he took off even more with those things. At one time he was second only to Walt Disney in the amount of merchandise he had out there. He had like over 400 items of, of things and they just kept at it. I mean, they were on every variety show possible, everything from the Muppets to Andy Williams, to John Davidson, to Johnny Carson you know, talk shows and things. And it was fun. It was fun to watch them. We'd go with them sometimes. Can you just quick, I just have to ask you about this one. You were on the Jonathan Winters show. At, oh my goodness. Yes. Time. Could you just tell <laughs> us what happened? Well, they had us on, uh, Jonathan Winters had us on his Christmas special and the whole Rogers family was on it. And it was a Christmas scene, a living room scene. And so some of us were playing with toys over under the tree. I was arranging the flowers on the fireplace with my sister. And then when Jonathan Winters came on stage, they said, okay, when he comes on stage, you're supposed to stop what you're doing. And when he says, come here, I want to tell you a story. You're supposed to go over and sit down. So we all obeyed. And, you know, he came on stage, he had his Viking hat on and he was going to tell us a story. Well, we all went over there except for one of my cousins who was three years old or four years old at the time. I can't remember, but his name was Rob, Robbie. And he decided he did not want to go hear a story. So he'd rather go play with the toys under the tree. Well, the problem was he found a, a big rubber ball under the tree and thought, oh, hey, what would happen if I threw this ball? Well, he threw the ball right in the middle of the cameras running and Jonathan Winters is telling us a story. 
He throws the ball. It hits Jonathan Winters in the head. It knocks his hat off. And and Jonathan Winters all of a sudden now is starting to improvise. And he was funnier in the improvisation than the actual cue cards were telling him to do. He just went completely off. <laughs> and it was so funny. It was awkward for all of us because we didn't know what to do. But the audience and the cameraman and the producer, they were laughing so hard. Some of them had tears rolling down their cheeks. He was so funny. And we were mad at the end of that because we were supposed to do two shows in front of a live audience. And because the director liked that one so much, he said, well, you guys don't even have to come back. You can just go home. It's like, but we don't want to go home. We want to be on TV again. Yeah, we're having fun. It's what's funny is years, years and years later, like when Rob was an adult already, Jonathan Winters ran into grandma at another event. The first thing out of his mouth when he saw grandma was, hey, Dale, how's that blankety blank grandson of yours? He called him out. He never let Rob live that down. And neither have any of us cousins. It's like, <laughs> and he's a wonderful guy now. He's really funny. But, you know, I just don't know what was in his head. I mean, you know, he was just, little. Just don't let him kick a ball around at parties at all. Oh, my gosh. It was really, <laughs> it was really an event. Uh, I've often wanted to have that tape. Uh, and if it hadn't have been that CBS had a big fire and a lot of their tapes got destroyed within the time when we were taping that show, so I'm sure that tape was destroyed, um, we would have it. And it would be really fun to watch. But we have a couple of pictures from that show, but that's it. Julie, I can almost guarantee you I watched that because I, <laughs> I remember in the 60s, all I remember were variety shows and cartoons. Yeah, that was a really big thing back then. You know, you have a great sense of humor. And I think you got a lot of that from your grandma, it sounds. And yeah. <laughs> you, you do tell a story. I, uh, you know, I want people to, to read the book, but you do tell a funny story. One of the things that your grandparents did was ride in parades sometimes. You mentioned Rhodey. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Did you tell a story about that? The rainy day parade? Yeah, tell that story. <laughs> they were in the Rose Parade, I don't know, seven or eight times. They were the Grand Marshal several times and whatever. Anyway, they were in the parade one year where they, instead of being on trigger and buttermilk, they had them on the float up on these floral horses. So what they had to do is they had to hoist them up by crane and set them on the horse. And they had to sit there while they are putting the flowers on around them because they didn't want to mess up the flowers. So they had to be at the float barn at like four in the morning very early in the morning and it was cold. And I know, cause I've done that in the float barns uh, for that parade, it's really cold in there. And so to keep warm, they kept bringing them cups of coffee to warm them up. Well, of course, by the time the parade is ready to roll out and the, the float is ready to leave the barn, they've had like, you know, 20 cups of coffee between the two of them. And grandpa had to go to the bathroom and he's like, I need to get off the horse. They said, no, Roy, I'm sorry, we can't ruin the flowers. He goes, but I need to go. And so he couldn't get off that horse. And so now it's like, he's thinking, oh man, now what do I do? And grandma said, just, you know, make a muscle, whatever, you know. And um, so they rolled onto the parade route and he's just panicked because he doesn't know what he's going to do. And all of a sudden it just, it was a cloudy day anyway, it starts raining and it starts raining harder and harder and harder. And pretty soon they are drenched everything is drenched. And he looks over and he just smiles at grandma. <laughs> and grandma goes, no, Roy, you didn't. 
he just smiled. Actually, I didn't even know that story was out and I didn't have it in the book because I wasn't sure if it was okay to share, but Dick Clark shared that story with me. And he said, yeah. I think that is the funniest story. And I had no idea that it was out there that people knew that story. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to put it in because it's been so many years. And grandma and grandpa told me that story themselves. And Diamond Farnsworth, our really good friend, who's Richard Farnsworth's son, he said, oh, man, you need to put that in your book. It's like when you if you see somebody standing, smiling in a swimming pool, move away from them. Yeah, move away from them. Exactly. I know the picture in the book is not that great a quality, but I thought I have to put this picture in anyway. <laughs> so lots of stories in this book, but I don't want to uh, forget to circle back and talk about the chapter you wrote about your dad. Mm. And we, we mentioned earlier that, you know, your grandma was very, very young when she had your dad and they were almost brother and sisters. They looked like, but you wrote such a beautiful memory uh, about your dad and tell us about what he was like. And he's the one in between you. You're very, uh, you, you've got a great sense of humor, very lively. It sounds like you're a lot like your grandma mm -hmm. and your dad was sort of in between. He was a little bit different, but he was a great guy. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, he had a totally different personality. He was very even tempered. And I never, well, I shouldn't say never. I can count on one hand the times I saw him mildly upset. I never, ever saw him angry, ever. And I mean, his whole life uh, when, you know, my whole life, I never saw that. And it wasn't that he was hiding it. He just was a peaceful man. And he was forgiving and he was loving. And, you know, he could have been really bitter and resentful because my grandma put him through a lot while she was chasing fame. And she would take him because she really wanted to be a mom, but then she really wanted to be famous. So she had this pull going all the time. So she would have to send my dad sometimes to the ranch, uh, to the farm her parents had in Texas, which was actually the best thing for him because he got, you know, all the farm animals there. He had friends. He went to Sunday school. He went to Boy Scouts. He had a normal life there. And then when he'd go to live with his mom, you know, they'd be eating a can of beans, sharing a can of beans. And he'd, he actually got rickets from malnutrition because he just uh, was sick because she couldn't take care of him. So, you know, he went all through that and never had a crossword to her when she went to Hollywood and she came home and she said, what do you think? He said, mom, you got to do what you need to do and I'll be here and I'll, I'll go with you if you want. I'll stay if you want, whatever. And when she took him to Hollywood and she came home and told him that she would have to pass him off as her younger brother because Hollywood wasn't having that. He said, you know, you need to do what you need to do. But just so you know, I don't feel comfortable lying about that. So when the press comes around and wants pictures and interviews, I'll just make myself scarce and I'll just disappear. And she felt awfully guilty about that uh, on into later years even. And, and she just would apologize to my dad. She loved my dad so so very much. And my dad never held that against her. I said, dad, how do you ever, how do you deal with life? The ups and the downs, the good and the bad. He said, well, honey, you can look at the good or you can look at the bad. And whichever one you look at the most 
it's easier to do. And so he just chose to look at all the positive in life. And he even liked hospital food there at the end. I said, dad, you're weird. And he said, I, I do. It's the best baked potato I ever had. And this and that. And I was like, oh, okay, you're just like nobody else I know. You know, they just had a beautiful relationship. And he just, he loved his mom. He prayed for his mom. He wanted her to be happy in life. And it turned out a happy story. It might not have, but it did. And uh, my dad was just the best. And nothing has been written about him much because he was so much older than the other kids. And a lot of the paparazzi pictures that they have of the family, he's not in them because he was in the army or he was in college and they were still at home. So he wasn't in a lot of those pictures and not much has been said about him. And I thought, you know, I really want to make this also a, a little tribute at the end of my book to my dad, because he had a huge part in my grandma and grandpa's lives and consequently in my life too. Plus my sons, I mean, they just loved their papa so much. So it was really, uh, it was really important for me to add that part in my book. Just a, a really heartfelt tribute that you gave to your dad. And that was, that was really nice. Now, what about your mom? How did she feel about marrying into this big name family? She was very sweet. And my mom was a great mom. She had a bit of a hard time when they first got married because she was a little intimidated by my grandma because my grandma was so outgoing and beautiful. And my mom was just, you know, where do I fit in? How do I do this? So she had a bit of a hard time. At first, at, I have a wedding picture that I didn't have room to include, but it's pretty funny. The receiving line, you know, where everybody's uh, shaking hands, there's my dad at the end, then my mom, and then there's like nobody in front of them. And then there's this huge crowd of people in front of, you can just see, barely make out, it was my grandpa and my grandma. And everybody's bottlenecked there at Roy Rogers. And my mom is looking down the, the, the aisle there, trying to figure out why nobody is in front of my mom and my dad. They're all stopped at Roy and Dale. That was pretty much in a nutshell, kind of how she lived her life with, you know, acquiescing to, you know, my, my grandparents, but she loved them. How could you not? They were so loving to, to my mom and treated her like a daughter. And it was, you know, it was wonderful, but she was, my mom was quiet. She was, she'd rather just kind of melt into the scenery. One of the things you were very clear about was that your grandma and grandpa, Roy and Dale were very intentional about no matter how busy they were, how famous they were, that they took time to spend time with family, to go visit family, to call family, all those things. They didn't spoil as you you make you make a point they didn't spoil anybody but they gave you their time and their attention which is more valuable than any gifts exactly you, right? exactly yes yeah yeah and one of the things you talked about was that the grandma dale decided she was gonna you talked about your mom wanted to blend into the scenery it sounds like she was oh, a lot her oh, mother my, right her mother was the same oh thing. my grandma mabel was even more like that than my mom and she just they got on the wrong plane one time and they thought they were going to San Jose to visit us. And the, the plane's already 
pushing back from the gate and they have all this stuff anyway. And she, she never could go anywhere incognito and which was embarrassing to my grandma, Mabel. She just was so shy and they had gotten all their, their chicken little box lunches on their lap and they're all ready to go. And the pilot comes on and says, welcome to flight such and such ladies and gentlemen on its way to San Diego. My grandma Dale leaped out of her seat and her lunch is flying all over. And she's saying, San Diego, Mabel, we can't go to San Diego. Come on, we got to get off this plane. And she starts unbuckling herself and getting all her stuff. And the flight attendants come down. And, oh, ma'am, ma'am, you can't do that. Oh, we can't go to San Diego. We have to go to San Jose. And pretty soon they stop the plane and the pilot has to come back and talk to her and he's he doesn't make any headway so he finally goes back sure enough the plane pulls back up to the gate the jetway pull you know comes up and they open the door they get him out they walk him over to they had to they had to keep the other plane held and and now the other plane's late and they got him on the right flight and they finally sit down with all their stuff my grandma mabel would have just gone to san diego but there they are, and the pilot of that plane comes on and says, okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this flight going to San Jose. And then he paused and he said, okay, if there's anyone not going to San Jose, you need to get off this plane right now. <laughs> and um, I'm not sure if the other people on that plane knew what had just happened, but he was speaking directly to my two grandmas. And Grandma Mabel was dying, I bet. Oh, she was dying. It was the worst thing for her. So yeah. it was, it was pretty funny. There were, they were so opposites. You couldn't have two grandmas that were more opposite than them. It was pretty funny. But the point is that uh, your grandma's, but uh, yes. I know it was your grandma Dale's idea yeah. to come and take time to go visit the family. One of your chapters is titled My Happy Place. And that was Chatsworth Ranch. Oh, yes. You have some early memories there. Could you just give us a flavor of what some of your earliest memories were? Well, there was just so many, there were just so many little nooks and crannies you could explore. It was a long rambling ranch house. They had 300 acres. They would often film on their property. They had cows and chickens and goats and sheep and everything. They had animals, they had the horses. There was just so much for kids to do. And I loved going in their closets because they had all their show costumes in their closets. And it just had a smell. If I could bottle that smell, I would, oh, I would love that smell because it smelled like a mix of liniment and men's, you know, aftershave or perfume kind of, oh, it just smelled wonderful for some reason. And I would go in there and I'd turn on the light and then the all the rhinestones on their shirts would sparkle on the ceiling and I'd stick my hand in and I'd wave the arms around and I just loved doing that. I mean, more than anything. And, and then I realized that I was alone and I'm, you know, I better go out where everybody else is. So I'd go running up the hallway and out into the living room again. But that was one of my just wonderful memories of being little of all of their unique things around me at the house that not everybody's grandparents had. That's you know. for sure. Now you, I know they moved from Chatsworth right around the same time they had the, some of the tragedies in their yeah, family and yeah. they, they moved to another place. But 
after the family moved from Chatsworth, after s- some of those tragedies that they had, they moved to another ranch, right? What was the name of that ranch? Well, it wasn't really a ranch. It was a house on a busy highway. Oh, okay. And yeah, it was not a ranch. And it was very disappointing because, well, it wasn't a ranch for one thing. There were no animals and it was along a busy highway and it was in a place called Apple Valley where there were no apples. It wasn't green. It was all desert and dust and uh, sand. And it was the high desert. That was very disappointing. But we, you know, we all got through it and we still had family get togethers and we got used to it. And then my uncle built him a a nicer house on the golf course that was really kind of a fun house. It was in the shape of a horseshoe, but it was still desert. It was a little greener because it it was alongside the golf course. Mm. They just had to get out of there because grandpa had too many memories and it was hard for him to stay in Chatsworth. You had a lot of memories. You talk about your grandma and I think she used to call you or you would call her when you were in college. Yeah, she did. She would call me to check in on me. Oh, And, um, you know, talk about somebody who doesn't have time. And yet she still would call me. And then she got into writing, uh, not writing, um, using little cassette tapes and talking into them. So she would talk to me as she was making lunch or whatever. And she would just, I used to love these tapes she would send me because I would hear every little thing. She would mutter to herself if she needed to do whatever, I don't know, while she was working. And we kept in touch. And I went out there a lot on the weekends just to get away from dorm life and just to be with them. I really intentionally made time to go spend time with them. And I'm not sure that all the grandchildren did that. It was definitely out there for people to do, but you know, you get your busy in your lives and this and that, and maybe people weren't as close to in proximity to them, but for whatever the reason was, I spent a lot of time one-on-one with them through my college years. That is wonderful. And I, I think you painted a picture about, sitting in your pajamas drinking coffee with your grandma yeah. in the morning yeah. Yeah, that was it, was, it was great we would get up and we would um sit at the kitchen table and we would just talk for a couple hours just just sitting and chatting about this and that and you know both my grandparents we'd be sitting there sometimes grandpa would be in his robe and slippers too and other times most of the time he was an early riser he would be already dressed before anybody else but he'd want to go to the museum or the swap meet and he'd say, you want to come with me? And sure, just hang out. And there was, it was usually a weekend where they were home. So they did have time, even though they were busy doing stuff at home. But those were wonderful times because it was very organic. Whatever happened just happened. That's great. And you know, there's lots of stories about stuff you did with Grandpa Roy. And it's actually great. Uh, but one of the things I, I just wanted to mention was the the rock collection that you had. Could you just oh. tell a story about Roy? Yeah, now that was at their highway house when I was nine, the first house they lived in. I had a rock collection and it was not a great rock collection. It wasn't like I had all these nice rocks, but I called them my gems. I had gems and they were gray rocks, river rocks, basically, but there was a story behind each one. And I thought, you know what, grandpa would love this. I'm going to take my rocks and show him. 
So when we drove down there one weekend, we were already living in Los Gatos at the time up in Northern California and they were at their highway house. We came in and I sat down and scooted up next to him and he was watching TV. And when there came a commercial, he leaned down and said, what you got there? And I said, gems. I said, I have my rock collection. I brought my gems. He goes, oh, let's look at them. And so I told him about every single rock I had. And he was so sweet. He listened to my whole spiel. And then he just got that squinty eyed smile that I just loved where he was about to do something fun. And he said, come here, come here, follow me. And so, and bring your rocks. And so I got my box, my shoe box, and I followed him out to the garage. And there on his workbench, he had all this stuff just strewn all over his workbench. Like um, it, it was a dusty and it had like, like a sawdust on it and everything. But he had all these rocks, but not just like my rocks. He had beautiful rocks, like amethyst crystals. And he had these geodes and he started showing me these geodes and he'd open them up and look at all the crystals, but they're so ugly on the outside. And we were just having such fun that I didn't notice that as he was showing me his rocks, which were beautiful, he was putting them into my box. Aww. And at the end of the time, he put the lid on and handed me my box. And all of a sudden, my box is really heavy. And I put it back up on the workbench and opened it up, up to peek in there. And he had put all of those rocks I had just seen in my box. And I just was so excited and he was he was a man of few words he was very shy and quiet didn't say a whole lot but he said I, I I think you'll enjoy those why don't you add those to your collection and I just hugged him so tight I said thank you grandpa and I'll never forget that it was just such an act of love they weren't that important to him but he knew it was important to me and it just brought us so much closer at even at nine years old. And that's when I really started to get close to him. Um, like I said, he didn't, didn't have a lot of words, but when he did and his kindness, he was really a great grandpa. Yeah. Wonderful story among other stories that you talk about. It sort of brings me to, to this part of it. Now, your grandfather died in, I think, 1998. Uh-huh. Yeah, he okay. did. And grandma a few years later. Yeah, 2001. Mm -hmm. You have a chapter that's titled The Lives They Touched, in which you really bring out the story of how they touched so many lives. You mentioned about special needs, the love uh, mm -hmm. that they fostered in among their family, the multi-ethnic family, as well as um, just spending time with, with everybody. But how else would you, what, tell us about their faith, because their faith was very important to them and and how they treated others. Can you talk to that a bit? Well, yeah, it, it you know, it really started when Robin was born and they really reached out to, uh, you know, something other than themselves. Up until then, they had just been chasing their dream of being famous or being, you know, whatever. And that just sort of faded away and they realized what was really important. You know, the things in life that are important aren't things and it's not fame because that's fleeting. And my dad actually had accepted Christ and been a, you know, he was a born again Christian from, uh, from growing up with her mother on the farm. That was another byproduct that was positive 
of my dad living with her. So he prayed for my grandpa and my grandma um, a lot. And he, uh, he never stopped. And so when they turned their life in a different direction and started basing it on following, following God, instead of trying to drum up all this wonderful life on their, their own, their life started to really take off as far as, um, well, they were always authentic, you know, and as far as their popularity with people, people knew that they were the real deal and they were, they were everything that people hoped they would be. So she would give credit to, she was very outspoken about her relationship with, with God. And she didn't push it on people, but she was very adamant that this was hers. So this was her, you know, her belief. And people really took to her, even though she was very strong in her personality, she never made you feel less than if you had another, another faith or another belief, she would be asking you questions. She wanted to know more about why you felt this way. Why did you believe this way? She's very curious. And I got that from her too. I was very curious. And so she never was one of those people that made divisions and made you feel like she was, oh, I'm so holy. You know, I'm so much better than you. Never, ever, ever uh, did you feel that from them. So that was really the driving force in the second half of their life was their relationship with God and with family. And, you know, it was all now in, in order the way that it worked mm -hmm. instead of chasing after something that was always going to be disappointing in the end. Very true and, and very nice. Yeah, I think it really summed them up. So over the years, your grandparents had a museum nearby, I guess, when your grandfather, particularly when he got older, he needed something he wanted to do. So he used to make these appearances at the museum. People love to run into him and he loved to surprise people. And that's all. Yes. Great. But in the <laughs> end, you know, the years have gone by, maybe their popularity is not really the newer generation, younger generation doesn't know them as well. So you had a lot of the things that belong to your grandparents and a lot of it had to go to auction. But you, uh -huh. it's the way that you opened up your hands and released those things. And tell us about that. Well, it was hard because, you know, everything in the museum had to be itemized and looked at by the IRS. And they came in and they, you know, grandpa may have paid $100 for something. Well, now they are appraising it at, you know, $1,500. And then the family now, you know, when they die, we owe half of that. And so they came in and appraised it so that, Christie's auction house could uh, know what to start it at, at the bidding. Um, and we had to dissolve the museum because of it just wasn't making money anymore. Okay. And grandpa always said, if it doesn't make money, sell it all, do whatever and be done with it. So that's what we were doing. And Dusty, my, my uncle Roy Jr. said, you know, if any of the family wants anything, you can, but you have to pay what the IRS appraised it for. So like his shirts were like 700. I thought I'm not paying $700 for a shirt. <laughs> At auction, they went for 7,000. You had to add a zero to everything because everything just went crazy out of the roof because they hadn't had so much of their stuff available uh, ever. And so the auction, the, the phone lines crashed and the computers went down because there was so much interest. It was hard for the family watching all of these personal items, 
like jewelry or this or that, going to these strangers throughout the country. And you start to think, wait a minute, that's, that's the families or that's, you know, that has memories. I remember, you know, playing with grandpa's saddle ring when I was sitting on his lap or something. And all of this stuff was just so hard to see go at first. And then you start thinking, well, wait a minute. Okay. This also means that there are so many people throughout the United States and even in Europe, other places were calling in and bidding that loved them, loved my grandparents so much that they wanted a little piece of their lives. And I thought how heartwarming that is that so many people loved the same people that I loved. And why not let them have a little piece of their life because you know what it's stuff when it all comes down to it it's just stuff and we're not going to take it with us nobody can take away those memories that i have with them and you can't buy or sell those memories and so those will remain with me forever and that's what is in my book so that's why it was so important for me to write this book and to give it to my sons because it is my my life and the the important things in my life in an indirect way it tells who I am and they just passed down such a heritage to us that um, I'm so grateful for and so that's that's all about that with the the auctioning off of all the their worldly goods and after that you know it's it's all spread out now it's all spread out to the people who loved them and uh, admired them. And you, by the way, get left with the memories, which is so, so wonderful. And the fact you wrote this book, it's your heroes, my grandparents, a granddaughter's love. And it is, it is a love story really of uh, mm -hmm. the beautiful memories that you have of two very incredible people. But I want to ask you a couple of questions before we finish up. In your life, you've been a teacher. You've you're a serious musician. That you've you've been in orchestras and you've done some traveling. And uh, tell us about, you know, about what you did in life and what you're doing now. Well, you know, we are musicians, my sisters and I, because I didn't really say that about my dad, but he was an extraordinary musician. He majored in music uh, at USC and he played the flute himself and just about every other instrument in the band. So we come by it kind of naturally. And so we were trained in classical music growing up. But by the age of five, we were piano lessons. And then we all picked up a stringed instrument and I played viola. I still do, but not so much anymore. And I traveled a lot. I lived in Europe for seven years and taught school there with the military bases. I lived in the Congo in a little village of straw huts where they were doing the guerrilla study, the mountain guerrilla study, mm -hmm. uh, very close by. And that was like living in the pages of a National Geographic. That's another whole book right there. But anyway, I had lots of varied experiences apart from my grandparents. I would have had a very nice life even apart from Roy and Dale because I had lots of opportunities for everything and um, chose to be a teacher. And I've been a teacher and kind of you know, dabbled in the Western world a bit. I go around to festivals and I sit on panels and people ask me what was it like, or they ask questions. And so I still represent them when people ask me and there's still an interest out there. It's usually people who are 60 and older 
I wish that there was a way to get these younger people involved because, you know, my grandparents are still relevant for today. The way that they lived and the morals that they taught and the family they had and the inclusivity that they showed people and the empathy. There's so much to be learned from that history right there. Very relevant. Yeah, especially for today. And it's an easy book because there's short chapters, so you don't have to read it cover to cover. It's just individual little stories. You could just open it up and read one story. I feel very fortunate because on all sides, I had people who loved me and who wanted me to succeed and who gave me a positive upbringing. Again, the book is very encouraging and it's a feel-good book and it's very real and it tells the story from the perspective of a family member who was loved by them and loved them. So I want to ask you if you could go back in time and you could be with your grandma one time and your, your grandpa the other time, what activity that you used to do with them specifically would you choose for each one to relive? With my grandma, I'd probably go back to sitting at the kitchen table in my pajamas and just um, drinking coffee with her <laughs> mm-hmm. and just talking about everything. And she used to get on to talking about her early days, too, which I loved hearing all. I mean, her whole life was interesting. And I would go back to just talking with her. She was my closest friend back then. And I miss her a lot. With grandpa, I would do anything that was outdoors that was that he loved to do because that was where he was the most comfortable and he was himself. So I'd probably go skeet sh- uh, shooting with him and see if I could hit a few more of those clay pigeons, which I didn't really do so well at. <laughs> not at all, right? No, <laughs> no right. not at all. But I used to love being outdoors with him and doing whatever, you know, dogs, horses. He said his best friends were horses and dogs because they had no agenda, no ulterior motives. They were just authentic. And that's really who they were. So I loved being with them when they were the most comfortable. So it would be that. That makes a lot of sense. Nothing fancy. (laughs) Nothing fancy. No. What do you think they would have wanted their legacy to be? I think this, I think this book, I I really do. I, I, um, I think they would be proud of me. I think, you know, this is the only, um, uh, interview that I've gotten all teary that I have, that I've gotten really, um, where I'm fighting back tears because, um, I think they would be really pleased with this book because a lot of these stories in this book, were stories that we shared at their bedside as they were in the last few days of their earthly life here. So these were things that we went back over and reminisced with them about. So there's nothing in this book that I think they would be disappointed in. I think they would love reading it themselves, you know, to go back over our times together. So, yeah. Yeah, Boy, that came out of nowhere. <laughs> oh no, that's it. Hey, this this just proves this book came from your heart. I want to thank you so much for being a guest on our show because it, I mean, we're your history, your story. That was your history, your story about your family and uh, some really incredible people. I mean, not just your grandparents, but so many others in the story, your dad and your mom, your 
your grandma, your other grandma. And yep. this sounds like a, it was an amazing family to be part of. I, I almost would want to hitch a ride on that time machine and go back and, yeah. and, and meet them. You know, I always, I grew up hearing about Roy Rogers all the time. I and mean, my parents were both world war two era people and they certainly knew who he was. And, Oh, by the way, Roy Rogers restaurants that we used to have one in town. They had oh, the yeah. best, best cheeseburgers <laughs> there ever were made. Really? Oh, uh, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, they had the restaurants. We didn't even touch on that. Yeah, he had those. Some left on the East Coast. Not a lot, but about 40 of them. Oh, bring them back to New Jersey because I would love one back in our town again. But this has been wonderful. I wish you all the best with this book and all Aww. of uh, your future endeavors. And let's stay in touch. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed talking with you. Happy trails. That You got to have those at the end. Happy trails indeed. <laughs> yep. Okay, bye -bye. Julie. Have a good evening. Nice talking to you. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.